you know someone who is providing care, say, hey, can I come over and sit with your mom for a while so that you can go for a walk? That's so much more helpful than just saying, let me know if you need anything. A sentence we've all said a thousand times, right? But offer to bail that person out so that they can get some time. It's a really concrete thing we can all do. Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. I am Susie Stadler, an architect and also the executive director of At Home with Growing Older, the producer of this program At Home on Air. We are pleased to welcome you to another conversation that matters for the experiences of later life. This season's programming, the focus is on the different ways to cultivate connection and our need for each other. We are honored really honored to welcome Dave Iverson, author of the wonderful book, Winter Stars, and a PBS broadcasting and journalism veteran. He will give us yet another perspective, firsthand experience on the need and nature of connections in later life. Thank you, Dave, so much for joining us. Host of this program is Howard Thornton. He's a board member of At Home with Growing Older and a creative spirit in our organization. Thank you, Howard, for leading this conversation. Thank you, Susie, and welcome, everyone. I hope you had a chance to read Dave's book, Winter Stars. It's a really wonderful journey of storytelling through 10 years of living with his mother, Adelaide. When Dave's mother, Adelaide, was 95 years old, he moved in with her to help take care of her without realizing that she would live to be 105. So this is quite a journey. And we're really fortunate to have Dave here to be able to share his feelings and thoughts about that time. I also wanted to just note that all the royalties from the sale of Dave's book do go to support the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research, the Dance for PD, which is a program of the Mark Morris Dance Group, and Avenidas, a San Francisco Barrio organization providing caregiver support. So Dave, let us know how you got interested in writing Winter Stars and what you did in this process to be able to share these stories. Thanks, Howard. And thanks, Susie. And thanks all for being part of this conversation today and for the opportunity to participate together in this conversation for At Home with Growing Older. For me, it really starts with what you described, Howard, with the decision I made at the age of 59 as a broadcaster at KQED, the NPR station in San Francisco, and working on a documentary film at the time to move in with my mom, which is, you know, obviously something that wasn't necessarily part of my life's plan. But I had a lot of flexibility, although I was working very much full time. I had the opportunity to do this, and I just had this feeling that I wanted to. I say that in part because I think caregiving is such a demanding journey 
that you have to want to. It's not something that's best undertaken if you just feel like you should. And so it helped, I think, that I wanted to do it. And my mom and I had always been very, very close. But of course, there was so much I did not know, starting with the fact, as Howard mentioned, that my mom would live another 10 years before passing at the age of 105. But I had no idea what the demands were. I had no idea how exhausted I'd be. I had no idea how angry I could get. I had no idea what it really meant to care for someone. The caregiving fundamentally is such a physical act of love, one that has to be renewed each and every day. You don't say, well, enough of that. I had no concept of any of that. And so part of my desire to write about it after my mom died was I was pretty sure I was not alone in having that perspective. That while it may be relatively unusual for an almost 60-year-old to move in with his mom, the idea of caregiving kind of arriving in your life, like, oh, I have to do this, whether that's for a parent or a spouse or a partner, or perhaps even an adult child, it's not something we plan for, even though it's so common. ARP says there are 54 million family caregivers in the United States, mostly caring for someone older. And yet we don't think about it. We don't plan for it. And I just felt like maybe I could write a story because that's what I knew how to do is to write stories, even though I'd never written a book before, that would resonate with people, that would provide maybe some insight into what this journey, at least for me, was like. I didn't want to write a how-to book. I wanted to tell a story. And my mom's a pretty good character. So that was part of why I wanted to write too, Howard. Yeah, she sounds like a character. And I, I love that part in your book where you say you're sleeping in your twin bed that you grew up in. And as an almost six-year-old adult, you're back there living at home, sleeping in that same bed. That must have seemed a little strange. I mean, there were definitely nights where I'd wake up and think, how did this happen? I've been able to do a fair number of things I've wanted to do in my life. I've been incredibly fortunate. <laughs> How did I wind up yeah. in this bed, you know, 15 feet away from my mom? Oh, yeah. What did you learn about what quality of life means? You talk in your book about caregiving. We think of it as being to enhance quality of life, but quality of life can actually change over the time that you're doing the caregiving process and what that means. Would you want to speak about that? Yeah. You know, I think quality of life is something that our own perceptions of that change over time. If you'd asked my mom at the age of 95, when she was still very sharp, if she wanted to live another 10 years in the last several years of that, she wouldn't be cognitively who she was and would spend most of her time in a hospital bed exclusively the last year and a half or two of her life. She would have said, no way. But she actually clung to life with a sort of fierce tenacity. I never heard her say, I'm ready to die or I want to die ever. And so I think you wind up having to think about this then in different ways because people's perceptions of quality of life alter. I think one thing we'd all be well off doing would be to write our own definition of that. You know, it's such a ubiquitous phrase, quality of life. But what, what does that mean for me, for you, for all of us? And I think to write that down, especially for those of us who are older, I'm 74, I should write that down and say, you know, I'd like to still be able to do these things. And if I can be helped so that I can still go for a walk in the woods or go watch a football game or play with my grandkids or spend time with my wife, all those things, then great. Define what that means and what kind of care support you would want to allow you to do those things. And also say, and at what point you would no longer want 
that and then sign it and say, and if I change my mind when I'm 98, pay no attention to that man. I mean, that's just my feeling. I think we need to spend more time really thinking very specifically about what that means. We can talk more, Howard, about what we did try to do and what did work, because it's really important to also say that my mom had a pretty great quality of life until she was past 100. And that was largely because she was able to stay in her own home. Some was what I could do, but it was also because I was surrounded by these extraordinary women who helped during the day so that I could go to work and do what I wanted and then come home and take over those caregiving responsibilities on the nights and weekend. It's a complex puzzle, it really is. And all of those things have to fit together, I think, for quality of life to really be sustained. That relationship with the women who helped you in that caregiving process was so important and so well articulated in your book. I know some of them you're still in relationship with and they became family. I know that you feel very strongly about being an advocate for caregivers who are mostly women doing that job. Talk some about those women and what they still mean in your life today. Yeah, I'd like to begin, if I may, just by naming them. There were four in particular who were with me for significant parts, one for almost the entirety of that decade, others for less time, but for crucial amounts of time. So those four were Eileen Khan, Sanai Latu, Ronette Morales, and Mele Taufa. They were all, perhaps you can tell by the sound of their names, immigrant Americans. English for all of them was a second, sometimes third language. They were extraordinary. And they were all people who understood, I think, by way of who they were, perhaps by way of culture and their own view of what family and care meant. They were all people who understood that getting old is part of life's bargain. Sometimes some of them would say to me, I don't really understand why this works this way in the United States. Why aren't more people at home with their families living out the end of their lives surrounded by a son or a daughter or grandchild? And they also had this extraordinary ability to just be present, you know, for them, caregiving was a true calling and they loved my mom. There's just no question about it. And they cared for her. I asked Sanai once, how do you do this? You know, And she said, well, when I care for someone, someone like your mom, I speak to her as I would my mom. And I try to provide the same tenderness and gentleness and kindness that I would to my own mom. And she did at mm-hmm. least... of the time, I would say. My mom could be really difficult, but they were so much more able than I often was to maintain this steady, quiet dedication. And if my mom was snappish, they would say, okay, Adelaide, they'd walk out of the room and they'd come back. And if Adelaide was brighter, they just went with that. They didn't have expectations that she ought to be a particular way. You were nice five minutes ago. Why aren't you now? That just wasn't part of how they viewed that. That's so extraordinary, I think. Still is to me. But it's something I really learned from so profoundly. I'm someone who likes to be right and have a good plan for things and then explain to you why my plan is not only right, but is going to work really well. A relatively annoying attribute for sure and entirely worthless when you're a caregiver because caregiving changes every moment, every day. 
you have to let all that go and be there. And those women were there for me at a time when I needed them most. I couldn't have made it without them. So that's why I think it's so important to honor and recognize them, honor and recognize those incredibly important skills that they bring to this country often from somewhere else. And we should welcome and recognize those gifts every bit as much and probably more than the person who will bring great technological skills to them from somewhere else to this country. Because we need that, I think, so desperately. And we do not value it enough. We do not support and pay those people enough. And I will always, always, always be grateful for how much they taught me and gave me. And I want to try to do my best to continue to tell their story and to bring attention to what they provide. Thank you for sharing that. I can only imagine the other side of this, which is you talk about how caregiving really cracks you open and reveals you on the inside, both love and anger. It's such a growth journey as a son and family member. It's different being a caregiver than perhaps if you're an outside caretaker and you bring up times where you were angry. That's another place you had a chance to grow and see about yourself. And just wonder if you could share some about that. Yeah. Well, my belief, and I write about this some, is that caregiving reveals you. It sort of seeks out your weaknesses like a heat-seeking missile. (laughs) You learn about your strengths for sure, but you Mm -hmm. learn a lot more about your weaknesses. And I, in the end, came to feel like, yes, I was there to help my mom because I could, but I also don't think it was entirely accidental. I needed help too, I just didn't know it. (laughs) And, And I had the good fortune in many ways to be placed in a circumstance where that would be revealed because it is such an intense experience. You experience great fun and great joy. I had these wonderful moments with my mom. She was a huge sports fan where I'd take her to Stanford games because she was a passionate Stanford fan. Sorry for Cal fans in the audience. And there's nothing like that, you know, to see this loud 100-year-old saying, tackle him, get that guy. You know, it's extraordinary. Also, it can be so exhausting and so tiring. You get up every night often and help someone in the bathroom and then you go back to sleep and then you're awakened again. You go back to sleep and you're awakened again. You're exhausted and you get tired of not being in charge of your own life because you've made this commitment and you want to sustain it, but there's times when you just don't feel like you can and then something happens and you snap. And that happened to me more often than I'd like to admit I tell a story in Winter Stars about taking my mom to my aunt's house for dinner, who'd sort of taken over hosting family events when my mom no longer could. She was my dad's much younger sister. And my mom loved hosting those events. One time when we were there, my mom was really cross and angry. And I just got so irritated with her. And I said, if you don't shape up here, we're going to go home. You know, like I would have to a little kid. And she didn't. She kept being cranky. And I finally lost it and said, okay, we're gone. And I marched her outside, drove back. And when she got home, she just stood by her bedside for a moment. And then she just said with this, with a kind of wail, I hate myself. And she collapsed onto her bed. But it wasn't for a long, long time that I understood what she meant. I was just sort of glad that she'd kind of been, in a sense, humiliated, you know, and had felt that. But what I came to understand was that She meant it when she said she hated herself. She 
hated being no longer who she wanted to be, this vibrant, active, independent woman, super volunteer, registering voters, teaching women at the jail to get their GED, wonderful spouse and partner to my dad, person who could host family occasions. She couldn't do that anymore. And her wail, I write, was from the heart, whereas sometimes I felt my own was turning cold. And then, you know, you, you have to acknowledge that. That wasn't the last time that I yelled. I yelled at her again. And you have to say, that's part of who I am, apparently. What am I going to do? How am I going to respond to that? How can I forgive myself for that? And it was my mom who actually taught me that too. Because one time I got really angry and stomped out of the room like a teenager. And then I came back into the room and I sat down and I just burst into tears. And she was the one who said, don't cry, David, don't cry. So you get all of it. You get the football games and you get the tears, tears of anger, but tears also of forgiveness. It's one of those experiences that can just bring you to your knees in a way that I think is important. Just like if you love someone and that person dies, that can bring you to your knees. If you go through a painful separation or divorce, that can bring you to your knees. Caregiving can do that too, but in so doing, it can also reveal love for the person you're caring for, maybe even for yourself and for the embrace of those around you. I would never have experienced any of those things if I hadn't made that choice. In really getting to the depth of the love, you get to the depth of your anger and other emotions. It's just part of that process. And so appreciate your sharing that with us. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Thank you, Howard and Dave. Let's go to some questions and then I'm sure more will come up as the conversation evolves. Mikiko asks, please elaborate more on what you wrote. Before living with my mom, I'd never had to change. Tell us more about how you have changed. Yeah, you know, I'd like to think that I was aware of some of my shortcomings and things that I needed to work on. But the sentence she references is true. I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to. But if you're living with someone whose dementia is advancing, you realize how fruitless and pointless it is to try to convince someone of something. And you learn that I needed a different skill, I guess. And while I'd like to think I'm a good listener, I think there's something that happens where you begin to understand, especially when someone has dementia, that you have to do better than just listen to the words. In fact, the words really aren't the most important thing. It's to really try to be present to the person who is there and hear the truth that's beneath those words so that you're present to that rather than getting upset because someone said something that isn't true or has repeated that sentence 15 times and you finally say enough already or, or whatever. So I think beginning to learn that, to be a little 
quieter and to acknowledge that was something that changed. I learned to be more flexible because you have to, again, as I said, you can create a plan. I was always creating these elaborate schedules and plans for how things were going to work and they would work just fine for like a day, you know, and then they wouldn't. And so you've got to be nimbler than that. You have to be more agile, I think. That's something I learned. So another question from Rajiv, how has the experience of caring for your mother impacted how you deal with your own Parkinson's disease, your self-care and others who care for you. Thank you, Raji, for raising that. I was diagnosed with Parkinson's just about two years before I moved in with my mom, which sounds often like, what were you thinking? And the truth is, I wasn't thinking enough about that question or any number of other questions. But I was extraordinarily lucky, and I continue to be lucky to this day. As those of you who have experienced or known people with Parkinson's, already know it's an extremely varied condition. My dad also had Parkinson's and my older brother also had Parkinson's, but I kind of drew the right card. Mine was very slow and progressing. I continue to do really well. And so I was fortunate in that way. But I also want to say I came to feel in time that it made sense to do this in part because I did have Parkinson's because my mom was my first great example of what care means by the kind of care that she provided my dad. And it wasn't so much just how she cared for my dad, it was how she lived with him and how they continued to do things. So for me to come back later in life and try to do at least something for my mom as she had done for my dad was bringing my own life in some ways full circle. And I think when you have any debilitating condition, you wanna feel like you can still have purpose and meaning. And becoming a caregiver offered that to me as well. And you're right, I also did learn about taking care of myself, which is the hardest challenge for all caregivers. It is so much easier said than done. People can say that little truism, well, you know, if you don't care for yourself, you're not going to be able to care for someone else. Well, that's just not true. Caregivers do it every day. They don't take care of themselves because they have to take care of someone else. Finding the ability to do that is not easy. Again, I was extraordinarily fortunate because I had these wonderful women coming in so that I could go for a run. I took up long distance running when I was living with my mom in my 60s. That was great for me and my ability to stay fit and strong and live with Parkinson's. It was also great for me emotionally. So I think it actually enriched my life as someone with Parkinson's far more than it took away. But it's so important to acknowledge how fortunate my circumstance was. So in a way, David, caregivers for your mom were also a little bit your caregivers, no? <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it, Susie. Absolutely. I didn't think of them in quite that way. But yes, they, you know, lifted me up when I fell flat on my face. They encouraged me. They admired The fact that I was just there and trying my best, even though I would blow it routinely. And we cared for each other. You know, we'd stay up sometimes. Eileen eventually moved in and lived in another spare bedroom, even though I was still responsible for night duty. But we'd stay up sometimes and talk. We knew each other's life stories. Again, that was just so unusual, perhaps. I don't know. I'd love to hear other people's stories about that. But yeah, they provided care. For me too. 
Thank you. A question about caregivers. CJ asks, I'm 59. My mom moved in with me three years ago, also not really planned. How do you come to terms with not having more time for your own life outside of work, friends and more? Yeah, I was fortunate to have work, to leave every day and come back. Over time, I also would start taking nights off. Sanai started coming and spending part of the weekend with us. That was hugely helpful. But again, finding that time isn't easy. Getting someone in to be with your mom so that you can go do what you want to do, it's a pain. It's hard. It costs money. It's difficult to do. If you're there for the weekend and you're not getting any help, but you really want to go for a run, you're kind of stuck unless you can bring someone in. And I don't think people realize how much that costs. Towards the end of my mom's life, I just felt like I cannot do as much of this anymore. And so for the last year and a half, I had much more help and it became 24-7 help. And that cost $15,000 a month. We could only afford it because my folks bought a house in Menlo Park, California, in what would become the middle of Silicon Valley in 1950 for $15,000. And I could borrow against that valuable piece of property to pay for that care. That's not exactly a great elder care plan for the country. That's why we have so far to go. But we can help each other in this regard. You know, if you know someone who is providing care, call her up and say, hey, Can I come over and sit with your mom for a while so that you can go for a walk? I'm going to the grocery store. Can I pick something up for you? That's so much more helpful than just saying, let me know if you need anything. A sentence we've all said a thousand times, right? But offer to bail that person out so that they can get some time. It's a really concrete thing we can all do. Yes, respite for the caregiver is so important. So Maya Veres asks, my mom has Parkinson's eight years now, and my dad has heart issues. He's convinced that he can take care of her, but he's exhausting himself. They had caregivers for a few months last year when my mom went into delirium, and neither parent wants anyone in their home again. How can I approach this topic with them again? What a difficult question. I'm just so deeply sorry that you're contending with that. I think it would be important to talk to someone to get some help with how you might approach that. Avenida's one of the beneficiaries of the royalties from this book in Palo Alto. I don't know where you live. There are places like that in many communities. They have some wonderful social workers there who can provide thoughts and counseling on how to begin to work through those sorts of questions and provide some respite. And I think it's tougher with spouses. It's easy for me. You're kind of once removed when you're a parent, but if it's your spouse, I understand why your dad would feel like I'm not this person's caregiver. She's my wife. She's my life partner. I want to be there. That's different than your parent. So I think getting some help with that professionally from someone who can provide some counseling to you, if not to your parents, would be worth considering. I also think that, and I write this, all caregivers need more help than they think they do. And all caregivers realize that later than they should. That was true for me, it's true for every caregiver I know. And I believe it's especially true for caregivers of spouses. Your dad is going to need assistance. He just is. And working your way slowly towards that realization is important. But I also think it can take time. He will come to that realization when he knows it. And I think there's some ways to encourage that, but it's not going to be likely that you're going to be able to change that tomorrow or the next day.
I also want to say there is in San Francisco a fabulous organization, Family Caregiver Alliance, might also be able to help in supporting you and having this conversation or giving advice. Family Caregiver Alliance is a great organization, and there are many others. Avenidas, which I mentioned, has support groups for caregivers. I think that's important, too. I just was part of leading a caregiving workshop last weekend. I think there's a great need for that, just for us to be able to offer these stories, and people really could provide support to each other. It was really lovely to see. Yes, I actually want to bring this also to the environment where caregiving happens, because that's something we do at, at home was growing older. And I marked this in your book, the sentence where you said, independence is a matter of inches. The walker to the bathroom, getting through a doorway. Can you say a little bit more if you had to adjust or adapt your mother's home and what this experience was like? One of my mom's great strengths was that she accepted help. What mattered to her was still being able to do things. So if she could still get to a Stanford basketball game, she didn't mind if I took her. Well, obviously she wasn't driving at that one. She didn't mind if there were people there making her meals. She didn't mind using a walker when she needed to. For her, it was all means to an end. It was means to a life. And Howard and I talked before about what quality of life meant. My mom was very focused on that question. And if she was going to have a supporting cast, she was just fine with that. My son wants to move in at the age of 59. Of course he does. Why not? Why wouldn't he? You know? That's actually pretty great because a lot of people don't want that sort of assistance or don't want to accept whether that's a walker or a son. And I think that's a really important adjustment and an attribute that ought to be applauded. We actually didn't have to make a lot of physical changes in the house. We moved some rugs that were already grip bars in the tub and by the toilet. We did get a hospital bed in time. We had a commode until she could no longer use that. And then I was never great at changing diapers, but I learned something about that too. So the changes were in the supporting cast much more than they were physical adaptations, but it made all the difference in the world that she was in the only home that she had known in her adult life. That meant everything. The familiarity of the home is such an important part for many people of feeling safe in their home. It seems like that's what was also true for your mom. She was able to overcome other obstacles with the help of humans <laughs> in her own spirit, of course. I think that's right. And that doesn't mean that it's possible for everyone to stay at home. It's just not. My dad spent the last year and a half of his life in a skilled nursing facility. I don't mean to argue or suggest that everyone should become a caregiver and everyone should make sure their mom or dad stays at home or their spouse or whoever. That's just not always possible. I was in a unique circumstance in many ways that allowed this to happen. I think it's also really important to think that through and be at peace with whatever decision in the end is going to provide the most loving care possible for the person you love. Yes, so true. In this respect, I also want to read Annette's sort of comment more than a question. When I cared for my mom in her last weeks, a friend brought me dinner every night. She said that she had to make dinner for her family, so she was happy to share with me. This was during the pandemic, so she would drop off every night and I would return containers. This was such a gift. This sort of wider network of help and friends and caring that goes beyond the immediate relationships. 
you have actually was the one you care for seems so important. Dave, since you moved out of your old neighborhood into the neighborhood of your mom, was there anything you experienced in this way too? Well, it was still my old neighborhood in a way. It was where I grew up. It's where I lived until I went off to college at age 18 and where I always came back. There was a certain constancy to that. It was a place that mattered to all of us, you know, to my brothers, to me, and to our children, my mom's grandchildren. They loved coming back to that house. It was a place that they could count on, whether there were disruptions in their own lives or whatever, they could always come back to 1121 Westfield Drive. And we all loved that beat up old house that basically was frozen in time. My parents went on what they considered a great spending spree and bought a new stove and a new couch in the early 1960s. And that was it. The house stayed exactly the same. And that was that was great. It meant a lot to all of us. And Sinai and Eileen in particular loved that house. I once was thanking Sinai for all that she had done. And she said, no, Dave, thank you. You opened up this home to me. And I love being here. Yeah. I remember when I read this in your book, how deeply touched I was that this home sort of became part of the larger family, including the people who cared for your mom. And the furnace went out. <laughs> and that conversation is like, well, you know, is that an investment that's wise to make at this point? And so you didn't. The support from that home changed. It became warm through spirit and holiday and candles and fireplaces and space heaters. You were able to continue having that supportive environment and change it in that way. Yeah. And that's funny, Howard. I'm a little embarrassed by that story because obviously I was being a little bit on the cheap there, but it was the last year of my mom's life or toward the end of the winter. And I remember thinking, well, you know, does it really make sense? Because we'll have to tear out his furnace. They had asbestos. It would be this huge deal to do this. And I thought, you know, it's California. We can keep the house warm with space heaters and it'll be okay, the fireplace. And it was. But of course, she just powered through and made it into the next winter. So yeah, I used to <laughs> laugh about the fact that she was home. She was just home without central heat. <laughs> and it changed the whole quality of life story, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Who needs that? So I wonder if this would be a good time for you to read to us from your book. Would you like to read The Winter Stars Conversation? Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Howard. I don't know how many of those present have read the book. I'm grateful to those of you who have. But this is a story all about the last Christmas that my mom was alive. And she was very restless that last year. She would sort of kick against the guardrails of the hospital bed. And it was because she wanted to be out and moving and going to a basketball game, probably. And I used to worry that she would never find peace. In the end, I began to feel like, well, that's just not who she is. She's not a person of peace. She's a person of action. But it worried me. I didn't want her to die unhappy or, or restless. So I'll just pick up the story there. Because this particular night, everything was, was different. I knew right away that on this December night, my mom was in a different place. There wasn't any restlessness. She just seemed quiet and calm. She looked to be, quite remarkably, at peace. We just sat there for a long time, holding hands. And I felt a wave of tenderness come over me. 
After a while, my mom looked at me and said in a voice that was soft, but only slightly slurred, you look wonderful. And I told her that she did too. And then I said, you make a good pair. And she smiled and said, what a pair. And then we sat for a while, my hand on top of hers, just sitting together, nothing more. And then she turned her head to me and said, I feel lucky. And she said it with more clarity than anything I had heard her say in recent months. And I told her that I, I felt lucky too, lucky for all that she had added to my life and to the lives of those around her. And that I would always remember what she taught me. And then she said it again, I feel lucky. And so I asked her if she could tell me why. And there was a long pause. And then she looked at me with eyes as bright as winter stars. And she said, because there's love all around. On that Christmas night, I felt something I had not experienced before. That while my time with my mom was still unfinished, her journey was now complete. We had endured our bursts of anger and frustration, but over time, our deep and abiding connection had always held. And while the currents of time and age had taken us into territory we'd never imagined, we'd kept traveling. And that journey had carried us to our truest destination as mother and son. It had brought me to the bedside of someone I loved so that I could hear the deepest of all truths, that love is all around. Thank you, Dave. In closing, that part of the book where the women, the caretakers, dressed your mother's body after she passed and put the lavender shirt on, it was such a beautiful, beautiful story of a ritual and so intimate, you know, and just really appreciate you sharing that. I'm glad you mentioned that, Howard, because it was a wonderful example of the physicality of love. Eileen had found an outfit that she wanted to dress my mom in after she died. Eileen was from Fiji, but also of Indian descent. And she'd gone to India and she'd picked out this tunic that was lavender, that was Adelaide's favorite color, and these white muslin pants. And Adelaide would ask her to show it to her. And my mom loved it. And I think because she knew she'd look really good in it. <laughs> She did. Before the hearse came, Eileen had said, let's have time with Adelaide. And they dressed her and cleaned her and put her in this outfit. And we all gathered around and talked. And then when it was time, they just so carefully wrapped her favorite sheets around her. And it reminded me at the time of the sort of beauty you see after a military funeral, the way they fold the flag and present it to family members before the casket is lowered into the ground. My mom got all of that, you know, and we all did. We all did. Thank you, Dave, for talking to us about a lot of really intimate and personal stories in your book. And I think it's felt very thoughtful and meaningful for me and, and I hope for other people in the audience as well. So thank you so much for writing this book and for showing up here to share this space with us. Well, thank you, Howard. And thank you, Susie. It's a great pleasure for me. Thank you for approaching this with so much thought and care and for the work 
that you all do. So it's my great pleasure and privilege to do this. Thank you, Dave. And I was also thinking sort of a wonderful conversation to have before we all move into the holidays, you know, that love is all around us and the importance for caring for each other and the connection we treasure, how precious it is. In a way, how lucky for you that you can keep recounting the story of this relationship with your mom, not only in your book, but also in this kind of conversations. And I think it's courageous, but it also must be really rewarding to be with her, you know, in this way. Absolutely, Susie. Thank you for seeing that and recognizing that. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Howard. Thank you all for joining and see you before too long. Thank you. Thank you, Susie. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.